if there is a God, how could He be a good one when there is so much injustice, hate, violence, evil? Why, if there's a God, would He allow Christians to be persecuted for their faith in Him? Why does God allow Christians to suffer as a result of them committing all that they are to Him and all that He wants them to do? Doesn't it just seem like it would be impossible then for a God to be there at all, and certainly if He is, to be good in any way? These are all age-old questions. And the weight and the tension behind them are what many people point to as the reasons that they are agnostic or atheists. Those questions that are asked. If there is a God, then why? How could there be a God? Because. And they point to all kinds of different examples. And even the strongest, most committed Christians wrestle with these things, those types of questions, the tension between what they see in the world and reality around them and what the Bible says and what the Bible points to as a good God. Maybe, maybe you have long wrestled with such things. Maybe you're wrestling with that today, right now with those types of thoughts and those questions and what seems in many ways to be irreconcilable uh, differences there and and conflict there. Um, Maybe you're wrestling with that as well. And if so, you're in good company. You're by no means alone. From the earliest days of the early church, uh, even the apostles and uh, the, the church that was formed around the gospel wrestled with those things and questioned those hard, hard questions. And that's why the Apostle Peter said what he did to close out his great first epistle. And that's what we're going to look at today as we finish up this series, Peculiar People, as we finish up with First Peter. We're going to look specifically at what Peter wrote about that kind of really difficult reality and the tension there between a good God and suffering of God's people. A good God and the suffering of God's people. So 1 Peter 4, 12-14 is the first section uh, that we're going to look at as we wrap things up. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, and I'll be reading from the CSB translation. Verse 12, the Apostle says this, Dear friends, or your translation might say beloved, both are appropriate. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal or trial comes among you to test you. He's he's speaking of persecution. And I would remind you that he's writing to Christians and to the church in Asia Minor that has been experiencing the first waves of persecution. 
Specifically, Jewish Christians have been driven out of, of all kinds of different parts of the empire, and uh, they've been driven out of, of Israel, they've been driven out of Rome, they've been driven out of, of places they were, and they are, they've been exiled now, and they're, they're kind of on this sojourn, this exile throughout the uh, areas of Asia Minor. And Gentile believers are also facing opposition and hostility from uh, their family and from uh, people that they were once part of and an entire system of, of operating that is contrary to the gospel. And so they have committed to the gospel. Now they're part of the church and now they are being ostracized because they're not any, they're no longer any part of the uh, very liberal Greek Greco Roman society. And so you're, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles, both of which now are believers in Christ, both of which are making up the church, and both of which are experiencing opposition and hostility and persecution. So he's saying, don't be surprised that you're experiencing this. Don't be surprised that this has happened. Don't act as if this is some strange, crazy, random thing. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. It reminds me, and it should remind you as well, of what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a fact. It's going to happen. And that's very similar to what Peter is expressing here. Don't be surprised. Expect it. Don't be surprised as if this is unusual. Verse 13, 1 Peter 4.13, he says, instead, instead of being surprised or shocked, instead, rejoice. What? Yeah. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. As Christ suffered, You now, as a follower of Christ, are suffering. Rejoice in that. Peter, are you you sure you know what you're talking about here? Are you sure you're aware of what you're saying and the implication of that? Peter would say, yes, absolutely. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed, For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, there is perhaps no greater affirmation that you are truly part of Christ, that you are truly in God's family that you truly have the Spirit of God in you, there's perhaps no greater affirmation and confirmation of that than the fact that you go through persecution. The very fact that you are opposed, that you are the recipient of hostility and even persecution, though it's not fun, though nobody is going to be happy about that happening, if it happens, you can rejoice and know that you are blessed because it shows you are in fact part of God's family and His purpose. You're part of His kingdom. And if you're part of His kingdom, the kingdom of this world is not going to be happy with you. They're not going to be warm toward you. And so rejoice in your affirmation and your position as one of God's own children, as one who 
has the Spirit of God in you and the the Spirit of glory resting on you. It echoes what Jesus Himself said, and certainly Peter uh, would have been thinking of, of all those words of Jesus as he spent time with Jesus as one of His apostles and uh, the things that he had heard the Holy Spirit would recall to his mind as he is inspiring what Peter is writing. Matthew five eleven and 12, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, You are blessed when, not if, when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, Jesus said, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's another reason to rejoice in persecution. It shows that you are part of a very rich legacy of faith. That the persecution these people experienced, and I would say the same to you and to me, if we experience persecution, we are by no means alone in that. There's a long line of persecution for those that are part of God's kingdom. And that should strengthen and encourage us to know that we're not alone, that others have walked through this before us. God brought them through it. He was faithful to them, and He will be faithful to us. That's certainly what Peter was wanting to remind his original readers of. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Or as Jesus said, you are blessed You're blessed when they insult you. Be glad and rejoice. Peter took that to heart. And he reminded his readers of that. And certainly he's not telling them anything that he did not himself embody and demonstrate. There's a great biblical example of what Peter is writing here, and it involves Peter. Um, The apostles, including Peter, uh, began to be persecuted by the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 5. Uh, God was richly blessing the church. He was growing it. You know, thousands were being added to it. There were many signs and wonders being done through Peter and the apostles, the, the text of Acts tells us. And just like they did with Jesus, the Jewish leaders didn't like that very much. They didn't like that thousands were, were coming to this new sect, this new thing called the way, they didn't like that very much at all. They didn't like that people were being healed and, and people were seeing God do these amazing things and they were jealous. And there was a, a spirit of jealousy that rose up within them and in bitterness and that was their motivation for going after the apostles just like it was their motivation for going after Jesus. Some key verses in Acts chapter 5 uh, as Luke tells us all the great things that were being done and how God was using them, and specifically Peter. Verse 17 and 18 says, Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail because of how jealous they were. So they put them in the jail. They were seeking to prosecute them, to restrain them, to silence them. God miraculously freed them from prison. He let them all go. And after they were miraculously rescued, they went back to preaching in the temple. They went back to doing the same thing, and they were rearrested. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just comical. And so 
it went on in that passage, and, and just then in verse 40 through 41, uh, it tells us this, after they, the Jewish leaders, the, the people that had arrested them to begin with, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So they threatened them and told them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, and Peter said, you decide whether it's right to obey God or, or you, but we've decided we're going to obey God. Thank you very much. And so they flogged them, thought maybe that would stick with them. They went out, and it says they, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Isn't that remarkable? They went through all that, and they didn't come out bitter. They didn't come out cursing God. They didn't come out saying, God, what is this? We have followed you faithfully. We've given up everything for you. We've endured all this. This is how you repay us? Where are you, God? Were we wrong to believe in you? They didn't go out questioning their faith and questioning the goodness of God. They didn't say, well, I guess we were wrong. There's no God after all, because if there was God, He wouldn't let this happen. And if He was a good God, He he definitely wouldn't. So, I guess we made the wrong choice. Back to fishing. It's not what they said. It's not what they did. They went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. The name, of course, is the name of Jesus. So Peter isn't instructing and challenging his readers of this first epistle to do anything or to act in any way other than what he himself did. And that, to me, shows us something very important to remember. No one wants to experience persecution. No one wants to experience persecution. No one's happy about that when it comes. No one naturally is, is going to be excited and joyful about being persecuted. No one is eager for it to happen. That's just not naturally going to take place ever. Uh, that's not what was true of Peter and the apostles. Yes, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for Jesus, but that doesn't mean that they were giddy about it. That doesn't mean that they were, they were excited as they were being flogged, you know, whipped with the cat of nine tails. It doesn't mean that they were uh, just full of, of this bubbly happiness. No one wants to experience persecution. But it's possible to experience supernatural joy while going through it. And there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes and goes. It's fleeting. It depends on the the right circumstances. It depends on all the emotional components being exactly right. Everything has to figure in exactly right. And it depends on what's going on around you. It's very whimsical. Joy is abiding. Joy is something that is resolute. Joy withstands all kinds of different circumstances. It's not tied to emotion. It's tied to fact. So no one wants to experience persecution, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible. In fact, it is possible to experience supernatural joy while going through it. 
And that's certainly what Peter experienced in the early days of the church as it was getting started. That's what he was instructing his readers to keep in mind and to to apply something he witnessed and experienced, and he knew that they would as well. And I don't know when persecution will come. I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime. Uh, There's certainly some reason we talked about this last week. There's certainly some reason to think that, that we may very well I don't know, but I would, I would challenge you here today that if persecution comes in your life personally, individually, or to all of us collectively, I would encourage you to, to keep this in mind and to believe this and to know that this is what God will be faithful to bring into your life as well, that you will be able to experience supernatural, not natural, but supernatural joy if God brings persecution into your life. He won't bring it and allow it without also bringing joy to sustain you as you go through it. And that is a good God. Now we jump to the conclusion of the letter. Um, As Matthew 5, 11, and 12 instructed, and uh, as Jesus did that in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, he instructed his disciples, and Peter experienced that, and the other apostles with him. Now he instructed uh, his readers to do the same. And with all of that in mind, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, wraps up this great first epistle, and we read this, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore. So remember, he he said that uh, you have this ability to rejoice, that that God is going to be faithful, and that you can rejoice uh, in the sufferings of Jesus, and that the Spirit of glory is resting on you, and and you will be glorified when Christ comes. And So you have all that to look forward to in the midst of all of your suffering in the present. Humble yourselves, therefore. In light of, of all that God is, is going to do, in light of all of His faithfulness, in light of who He is and the fact that He's going to bring you through whatever suffering He allows, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time. Verse 7, casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. That word casting, that's, that's exactly the same thing as, as what happened when Jesus told Peter to cast his net again in, when Jesus restored Peter in John 21. Very similar to how Jesus first called Peter and the other disciples with him as they had been fishing all night and they didn't catch anything. And Jesus told them to go out again and set their nets down again and Peter said, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. But Jesus said, just, just do it. Peter said, okay, at your word, we'll do it. Let's down the nets, hauls in so many fish that the other boats had to come and help them. That was at the beginning of Peter being called to the ministry. And then after, after Peter denied Jesus right before his death, he was wrecked. He saw that he wasn't, in fact, stronger, more committed, more devoted than the other disciples like he claimed he was. He was absolutely devastated. And even after seeing Jesus alive, we get the impression that he still just couldn't 
move on with his, his horrible denial of Jesus. And while waiting for Jesus to appear to them again like he said he was going to do, he tells the other disciples, I'm going to go fishing. So they say, we'll go with you. So they fish again, and it's all night. And Jesus appears to them again, and he says, have you caught anything? Peter and the other disciples, they said, no, we, we haven't caught a single thing. Jesus says, cast your nets on the right side, and you'll haul in a great catch. Sure enough, he did. Hundreds of fish were caught. Peter said, it's the Lord. And he jumps out of the boat, and he runs to Jesus. And Jesus beautifully restores Peter and reinstates him and tells him, go and feed my sheep. Lead my church, Peter. I'm not done with you yet. When Peter says, casting all your cares on him, I really believe that's what he had in his mind. I really believe he heard those words from Jesus again in John, recorded in John 21 as he was restored. It's the same word that's used. It's also the same word that was used when Jesus made his triumphal entry and they cast their coats down and cast the palm branches down. It's throwing. It's, it's not a, a light or easy, gentle thing. It's, it's forceful. There's action. There. It's, it's throwing with great force. That's the word here. So Peter's saying, throw, throw all your cares, all your anxieties, all your fears, all your burdens. Throw them on Jesus because He cares about you. Why does He? I have no idea. Should He? By all rights, no. But He does. The sovereign Creator and Sustainer of all the universe. The One who spoke every atom into being and who holds every atom together by His power cares about you. That's a good God. And you're not going to find a better one anywhere at any time. Cast, throw all your cares on Him because He cares about you. But there is also a warning here. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Why? It tells us in the next statement. Your adversary, there is a very good God, very real good God who cares about you, who wants you to cast all your cares on Him, but there is also a very real adversary who wants to keep you from doing that. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring, ravenous lion, not a meowing kitten, which we often think of him as. So often we don't take our enemy seriously enough, church. Now there's a balance here. We want to take him seriously, but we want to realize that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We want to have a balance there. We want to remember that he's defeated. He's already lost. We want to remember that we are covered in the 
the mighty blood of Jesus that our enemy can't touch, but we also need to take him seriously because he is still a formidable foe. He is still an adversary that prowls around and he's roaring and he's ravenous and he's looking for anyone he can devour. And he's smart. You know that the lions, uh, as they hunt their prey, they don't go after a really big herd all at once. They don't go after a really big collection of, of animals that are all together. They look for those that are the straddlers. They look for the, the ones that are off on their own, isolated from the rest of the, the herd. Wolves do the same thing with a flock of sheep. They look for that lone one that's off away, that doesn't have the protection of the rest of the flock. That's exactly what our enemy does. That's why it's so important that we're doing what we're doing here today, but that it goes beyond this, that we, we don't just gather together as one body. As important as that is, what we're doing corporately here, it's important that we go forth from this corporate gathering and that we continue to function as the community of faith. That's why God's Word says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as the ecclesia of God, the called out ones, the peculiar people. Be peculiar people, not peculiar person. It's all about the plural, not the singular. And we, we too often go through the Christian life in the singular. We try to lone wolf it. We try to do it on our own and we're never meant to. There's strength. And there's life in numbers and in the community of faith. And so the devil, as a smart adversary and predator, he looks for anyone. Notice the anyone? Anyone he can devour. Anyone who's off on their own, trying to do the Christian life on their own. Oh good, there's one. They're they're on their own. They're weak. I'm going to target them. They're easy prey. Verse 9 says, Resist Him. Resist Him. Don't go along. Don't just lay down. Okay, I guess I can't do anything about it. I have this adversary that's like a roaring lion prowling for me. I guess I'm just defenseless. Oh well. No. Resist Him. He wouldn't say that if it weren't possible to do. Resist Him. Firm in the faith. How do we resist him? Well, there's a whole passage in the Bible that gives us great instruction and great means of how we do that. Ephesians 6 talks about the spiritual armor that we're to put on constantly that we can stand against the attacks of the enemy. You should read that if you haven't in a while. It's good to memorize, good to come back to, good to apply all those different pieces of armor. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind, here's community, okay? Here's community, here's togetherness, here's the plurality that's so important. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. You're not alone, Peter is saying. And there's great strength there. There's great encouragement there. There's great motivation there. You're not in this fight. You're not in this suffering alone. It's not unique to you. It's shared by countless other believers all throughout the world. 
we have a tendency when we're going through rough times to look inwardly and say, oh, poor, poor me. Why is it always just me? You know, we sing ourselves a little song and we act as if it, all the world is great for everybody else, but not us. That's never true. It's never true. Not only are others going through what you're going through, but many, many times, most people are going through more than you are most of the time. And that's going to be true of persecution as well. The same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. But it's not all despair and it's not all uh, heavy-handed instruction here. Verse 10, there's hope, there's light. Verse 10, Peter says, the God of all grace. Aren't you thankful that God is the God of all grace? The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. How good is that? The God of all grace who first called you to Himself, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself. He won't delegate that out. He Himself will restore and establish and strengthen and support you after, this is key, after you have suffered a little while. Hmm. Why does that have to happen? That's the question, right? I, I, want, I want that restoration and establishing and that strengthening and that support without the suffering, right? That's what we want. But we see here very clearly that the suffering is actually part of God's plan. It's very much an active part of His plan for all those who are in Christ. To Him, this God of grace, who will Himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support us after we have suffered a little while, to Him, Peter says, be dominion forever. Amen. In other words, to Him be all authority. To Him be all rule. To Him belongs all sovereignty. So even in the suffering you experience, He will sovereignly superintend in that and use that somehow for your ultimate good and for His glory. Why, though, do we have to suffer a little while? Why does He include that in His plan for the believer? Why does it have to be part of it? Well, James chapter 1, verses 2-4 through four gives us some pretty good indications of why. Pretty good explanation of why we have to suffer a little while before we can experience that restoration and God Himself establishing and strengthening and supporting us, why that has to be part of His plan. James 1, 2-4, James writes this, Consider it a great joy. Are you noticing a theme here in God's Word? Rejoice in suffering. Be glad when you are persecuted. James says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Yep, there's a pattern, all right. Why, James? Why are you saying this? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Thank you. You're smart people. You probably already see those indications and explanations as to why. Why could possibly God allow this suffering in the believer's life? Well, there's some pretty good answers as to why. Let me put it to you this way. God uses suffering to strengthen His people and to point the spectators of their suffering to Him. God uses suffering to strengthen His people and to point the spectators of their suffering to Him. Those spectators may be uh, people looking in, uh, watching the believer go through just really difficult circumstances. In other words, uh, this is not limited to persecution. I mean, in the, in the immediate context, what we're looking at here, it is. It's, it's about persecution and, and hostility and suffering for your faith. And, and I don't want to take away from that, and certainly that's part of that spectator aspect as well, but it's not limited to just persecution. Many of you have had a very difficult, challenging year. Many of you still are. You've suffered and you are suffering. And I am sure those of you who that's true of, who have suffered and are suffering in one way or another, whether it's what's going on in your family, whether it's what's you know, going on in your own personal life, uh, health, work, family crisis and relationship difficulties, whatever it may be, those of you who are suffering, you've probably at some point asked, why, God? Where are you in this, God? That's perfectly natural. Perfectly, perfectly understandable. And God's okay with you asking that. His shoulders are broad. He can handle it. What He wants you to do, though, in your questioning is coming to, come to the place of realizing and trusting this, that God allows the suffering to strengthen His people. And He uses that suffering to point the spectators of your suffering to Him. So, believer, if you're suffering in some way, and have been, know this, that there are so many other people around you watching you. They're looking into your life. They're looking you. They're at you. They're watching you as you suffer. They're a spectator to your suffering And if it's a believer that's watching that, they are strengthened and they are encouraged as they see you and and your commitment holding firm. As they see you still believing in the goodness of God. As they see you still loving and serving and worshiping and praising even in the midst of your suffering. They are challenged in their faith. And for the unbeliever, they are just marveling and amazed at, at how you could be doing this. And in terms of persecution, the spectators of suffering as it relates to the persecuted church, the spectators are the ones doing the persecuting. They're the persecutors. 
And as they, the persecutors, are persecuting God's people and they're seeing God's people stay God's people, continuing to be devoted to Him and loving Him and trusting Him, they too are amazed and astounded. And God uses that to point the persecutor to Him. I want to leave you with a modern example of this, of what what I am talking about uh, in the statement that I gave you. And and in really, it's an example of both of those texts that we just looked at the 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, and the the James 1, 2 through 4. A few years ago, an Egyptian Christian told a Christian publication when people in the West pray for persecuted Christians, they should not pray for the persecution to stop. He does not believe praying for an end to Christian persecution is biblical. Here's his actual quote. Persecution is actually a part of the journey for anyone who wants to live for Jesus Christ. Sounds like he knew 2 Timothy 3.12, and believe that. He said, I would ask my brothers and sisters to please pray for the church of Egypt to stand strong through those persecution winds and to shine for Jesus more than any time in our history. He added the reason for such prayer requests is that the Muslims in Egypt, the ones who are the persecutors of the persecuted, the Muslims in Egypt are shocked to see Christians showing love and forgiveness in the face of extreme discrimination and opposition. And as a result, it's bringing many more people to Christ. Why does God allow persecution, suffering, hostility, opposition... Where is God in all that? He's on the throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's orchestrating in ways that none of us could imagine or do. And He uses suffering to strengthen His people and to point the spectators of their suffering to Him. Praise be to His name. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the relevance of it, the power of it. Thank You for Your inspiration of Your servant Peter to write what he wrote. Help us to apply it. Help us not to think just because we have not experienced real persecution yet that it does not mean we won't. Help us to be ready and prepared. As we saw last week, help us to be always ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that we have, and to do so with gentleness and reverence. Help us to live in such a way that people have no trouble identifying us as followers of Christ, and help them to see in us such differences that they cannot help but ask where this is coming from, and how they too could experience what makes us so different. Thank You for Your faithfulness. 
Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are very, very good and that you will always and only be good, even in the midst of hard circumstances. Thank you for using everything that comes our way. Help us to trust you. Help us to live for you. Thank you for being our good Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.